Let's open the Word of God to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, where you were last evening, the Lord willing, and so we will not need to spend long there, but let's remind ourselves of the facts that are recorded there for us. Death is man's greatest enemy, but we have certain victory over his greatest enemy, so we are blessed indeed to have victory over death. We like to compare Elisha to Elijah sometimes. Because when Elijah died, he took Elisha across the Jordan River, took his mantle, smacked the waters, the waters divided, just two of them could walk across on dry ground, and then Elijah told Elisha he was about to leave, and he said, is there anything I can do for you before I go? And Elisha said, I would like a double portion of your spirit. Well, Elijah was the most spirited man Israel had had. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not Elisha, but Elijah, because Elijah was a very spirited prophet. Elijah answered by saying, you've asked a hard thing for twice my spirit. But if you see me go, the Lord's going to give it to you. And he saw him go. The chariot of God descended and picked up Elijah and carried him into heaven. Right. And as he carried him into heaven, his mantle fell off on the ground. So Elisha picked up that mantle, walked back to the Jordan River. You know, it'd be a little, ner- you'd be a little nervous. He grabbed that mantle and he said, and he smacked the waters and he said, where's the God of Elijah? Amen. And it parted and he walked back. He walked through the Jordan River the other way, back to the other prophets. We go to one verse in the Bible, one obscure verse over in 2 Kings in verse chapter 13, verse 21. Don't turn there. This is how we know that he had double the portion of Elijah's spirit. And I told you this just very recently, but we're talking about resurrection today. Right. Resurrection. So, we, you know, we want to deal with everything we can find in the Bible that we have time for today. Elijah could raise the dead. The great woman of Shunem built an addition onto her house for Elijah to stay there when he was in the area. And she she was barren. Elijah prayed for her. The Lord gave her a son. That son had a brain aneurysm one day or a stroke when he was out in the field with his father. He died. The the great woman of Shunem got permission from her husband to go get Elijah. She, She brought Elijah back. Elijah went upstairs, stretched himself on the lad, and brought his life back into him. And so Elijah raised the dead. Well, how do you do twice as good as that if you're Elisha? You raise the dead when you're dead. Elijah raised the dead while he was alive. Elisha's bones were thrown into a tomb. In a battle, a pagan nation fighting Israel, a man died. They threw him into the, the tomb to get rid of his body. And when he fell down dead and landed on Elisha's bones, he came to life. Yes, that's resurrection power. But now, that's Elijah raising the dead. That's Elisha raising the dead while he's dead. What about the Lord Jesus Christ? All graves shall open. All graves shall open. It's not just a revival of someone dead for six hours or someone dead for six days or for six weeks all the dissolution of the human body, every single body that has ever been conceived on this planet 
will be brought back to life by the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only will he bring them back to life, but their restored bodies will last how long? Forever. Either in heaven or in hell. And he will give to them in those resurrected bodies either eternal life or eternal damnation. There is no comparison. It's not twice the spirit of Elisha in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an infinite measure of the life-giving power of God in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 27. Do you believe the word of God? I do, as I wrote you twice in the preparatory yesterday. I read at Matthew chapter 27 and verse 50. Jesus is on the cross in context. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion, and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And we believe, and are sure, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, And these events happened. Look at the life-giving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The residual effect of his resurrection from the dead. The residual effect of him dying. When it says he yielded up the ghost, that means he gave up his spirit. He wasn't fighting. He wasn't holding on to the bed rails or the bed posts, wanting to stay another minute. He gave up his spirit to God. And it's the way we're supposed to die. He said, in his final words, they're not recorded here, they're in Luke chapter 23, his final words were, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and he let himself die. He laid down his life. John chapter 10 teaches us that. It was not taken from him. He gave up his life. That's how we're supposed to die. Stephen, when he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, his final words, or near the end, were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's how we die. We just give our spirits back to the Lord. He created them in the first place. He put them in a body, which is a house, a temporary tabernacle for them. He takes that spirit out. The body dies. We put the body in the ground. Jesus is coming back for our bodies because he died for them as well to restore us back together, body, soul, and spirit, to spend eternity with the Lord. And so we should die that way. Jesus died that way by yielding up the ghost. Ghost is just another word for spirit in the Bible. Jesus gave up his spirit. The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom because it was done by God. God ripping that 60-foot, 4-inch thick veil from top to bottom. Think of a tapestry, 4 inches thick, and see if you could tear it with your hands. You have trouble with 8 pieces of notebook paper. Thank you, Lord. The Lord tore it from top to bottom so that we can go straight into the presence of God by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The earth had a quake, so there was an earthquake, and the rocks rent, 
And the graves were opened, cemeteries were released and were raided, and tombs in the side of hills and mountains there in the Jerusalem area were opened up. And then three days and three nights later, 72 hours by our accounting for three days and three nights, when the Lord Jesus Christ arose, many bodies of saints came out of those graves and went into the city of Jerusalem and appeared unto many. Who is it? Tom. Tom, we buried you last week. Well, here I am. The residual power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, sometimes we talk about Abraham, Noah, or someone else being there, but they wouldn't know them. They wouldn't know what they looked like, and they wouldn't believe the name. But if it was Tom they had buried last week, and now he's at the front door, there was power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. This is our Savior. And today we want to celebrate and rejoice in his victory over death and the life-giving authority that he's able to speak to us in regeneration, in resurrection, when he comes for us in the last day, and he can change anything in your life. What are you praying for in your life that you wonder if he's able to do? He can do it. He can do things far greater than the little tiny details of your life. He can take care of the huge details of resurrecting 70 billion people that have lived on this planet since Adam and Eve, most of whom are greatly dissolved and their cells spread through the earth. But he'll put them all back together. He put them together in the first place, and to regather them is actually maybe even easier. How do we know? They both take infinite power, so we can't relate to them directly. Look at this passage. This is wonderful. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's not in John. It's in Matthew. Because I have it in one gospel, do I still believe it? I believe it as much as if it were in five gospels. It's here in Matthew. And Lord, we believe it. We have committed our lives in this world and eternal life in the world to come based on your word. We trust it in everything that it says. We believe it and we're excited by this. We love to knock on the pulpit. And think about Tom being at the door that was buried last week. We love to think about it, Lord, because we know you've got the power to do that. Right. You've saved us. That took more power than raising Tom from the dead. Right. You forgave us our sins. And you called us to worship you today. Today is April 2nd. And the Roman Catholic world holds Easter on April 16th, two weeks from today. This sermon has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with that. And the songs we sang of the resurrection have nothing to do with that. Right. They're two-thirds of the way through their pagan practice of Lent. We don't care what they do or why they do it because we know it's not in the Bible. Right. We do what's in the Bible, and that is preach the gospel. And the gospel includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was one of the fundamental parts of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. It was preached over and over again. To be an apostle, you had to have witnessed, seen, eye to, seen with your own eyes, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul, because he was converted later, after Jesus had gone to heaven, Jesus had to appear to him personally, which he did several times, for Paul to have been an eyewitness of Jesus Christ resurrected so that he could be an apostle. It's preached everywhere. I'll show you in a few moments. Yesterday in Virginia, we buried a friend of this church that caused us to consider death and resurrection. 
Death is certain. As a proverb we had this past week declared, there's four things in the earth that are never satisfied. There's four things in this world that are never satisfied. Let's start at the back end of that reference. A mother who's barren. Her womb is never satisfied till she has a baby. Fire is never satisfied because it'll keep burning fuel that's in front of it. It'll burn as long as there's fuel. The desert is never satisfied with water because it sucks that water in and wants more. Now we're up to number one. What's number one? What's never satisfied? The grave, the cemetery. There's always room for you. There's always room at that end for you to stay a while. Death is certain. And so we, we were taught it this past week in a proverb. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 16. Today we observe the Lord's Supper, which requires Christ's resurrection and promises our own by his death for us. We've recently studied John 5. John 5 verses 21 through 29. The Lord Jesus is on trial for his life and he declared authoritatively that God had given him the authority of life and the authority of judgment. He declared it twice. In verses 21 through 29, those nine verses, he declared that he had that authority and that by his voice, not by me preaching about him, by his voice, he can raise us from death in trespasses and sins in the great work of regeneration. And he said, marvel not at this. The hour is coming in which all that are in the graves are going to come out by my voice. And is that consistent with the rest of the Bible? The rest of the Bible tells me that the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. How long do you think he's going to plead with anybody to come out of the ground? Come forth and we'll come forth. He won't need decibels or anything, but it says shout, so I shout. And it's not hard for me to do on this subject. Lord, we love this subject. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ and for raising him from the dead for us. You know, sometimes we need the house of mourning to appreciate the incredible, unhindered power of life in Christ. And so those that traveled to Virginia on Friday, they got to be in the house of mourning. And in the house of mourning, it causes us to reflect on his life-giving power. And so we celebrate that today. And so the Lord's led us to this subject today for these reasons and others as well that only he knows of, that these are the ones I'm able to discern myself. I trust him. How do, how do I trust him? He doesn't send me a biplane with some trailer in the sky telling me what to preach on Sunday. I don't look at the length of hair on the bellies of caterpillars as the farmer's almanac. I don't do anything like that. All of a sudden, some subjects just dry up and others become very full and fruitful. And that, I go with them. Because I trust him. He's always led me and I, I love him for it. Amen. Our religion knows the cause of death, the cure for death, and the end of death. Right. Resurrection. We know all that. The rest of this world knows none of it. They can't explain death at all. They can try to give laws about it and laws of thermodynamics and so forth and the decay of the universe. That isn't explaining it at all. Where did the law of decay come from, moron? Where did the law of decay come from? We know where it came from. It came from the curse of Eden. And we're told about it in Romans chapter 8. There's a a bondage of corruption on the whole creation. That's why roses fade and your puppy dies. 
Everything dies because of the bondage of corruption on it. We know where those things come from, and we know the cure. And my brethren, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, as you read last evening, we are of all men most miserable. The Christian life is to help us by gathering together in this room, snuggling up close to each other in our cramped quarters, and helping each other get our attention and our affection off of this world and onto the next world. That's what real Christianity is. Joel can write a book, Your Best Life Now. Because where he and his people are going, it may be true. Now, I didn't say that about all of them. But if you're going to write a book, Your Best Life Now, you better put that in perspective and context because our best life is later. It's when we're in heaven, and it's far better to depart and to be with Christ than to be here. And we want to always remember that. I know the more fun we have in this world, the more promotions you get, the more money you make, the bigger your house is, all those things just reach out like tentacles with little suction cups on them to embrace you and pull you in that it's really nice to be here. But you've got to pull your diving knife out of your belt and stab that octopus in the eyeballs. Sorry, children. Stab that thing and let its inky substance flow into the water because you're messed up. You're letting little temporal things bring you into slavery. And it's only going to take a few years. And even in a natural state, you will know that those things no longer make you happy. They are simply a burden that you've got to bear and you want to get rid of them. And so they sell their big houses and downscale and downscale until they're in a one-bedroom condo. Even natural men. But we've got something better. Oh, the Lord's given us everything. We live in America. We can have him and this world, but in that order. In that order. It's always got to be him first. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then he'll take care of those other things. The historical record is sufficient that Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the dead. That's outside the Bible. But we don't care what it says outside the Bible. They can't figure out anything. Do you know how many years it took them to find Osama bin Laden? Are you kidding? It shouldn't take more than 36 hours. Unbelievable ignorance. Why can't they get rid of ISIS? ISIS stands around the world, raises their hands, flags down any drone that wants to be looking and says, here we are. Here's our camp. What do you want to do about it? They don't know anything. We have history recorded for us in the Word of God. You, brethren, death, you sitting and breathing right now is evidence of the gift of life from the almighty source of life. There's two things to think about. You are alive. You didn't ask for life. Nobody asked for life. There was no think tank. There was no legislation. There was no research program about life that brought it into existence. It was given. You can't turn it off. You can't stop it. You weren't consulted about it, and it's being sucked out of you right now while I speak. It is being sucked out of your cells. It's being sucked out of your hair. I'm glad I'm facing you so you can't see the back of my head. It's taking away our hair. It takes away our teeth. It takes away our hearing. It takes away our seeing. It takes away our strength. 
Life was given by God and life is taken by God and he's righteous and just in both. And he did both for his own glory. The Lord hath made all things for himself. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's the word of God. We believe it, submit ourselves to it, and love that fact. Death is only a clothespin away. Look at Isaiah chapter 2 with me. Do you know that death is only a clothespin away for you? Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 22. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. For wherein is he to be accounted of? This is God mocking man in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 22. Cease ye from man. Let him alone. He's foolish and ignorant, whose breath is in his nostrils. You are only as strong as the two holes in your nose. And if I put a clothespin over your nose, it's the end of you. That is the truth about life. And so cease from man. Don't put your trust in man. Don't follow man. Like Adam warned us, don't listen to his counsel. Don't sit in his seats or stand in his way or get scornful like he is. Cease ye from man, for wherein is he to be accounted of? His breath is in his nostrils. You should come away from this simple study and preaching today with favorite faith-building verses about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Children today are taught insanity by insane adults with the transformers. See, I barely know what I'm talking about. I had to look it up because I hate all that junk. Transformers. They've got movies. They've got books. They've got comics. They've got toys that you can get of transformers. They don't know anything about transformation. We know all about transformation. This corruptible shall put on incorruption. This mortal shall put on immortality. The body is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. That's what the Bible teaches. That is transformation. It's called glorification. And their little plastic rubber dum-dums that they change from one form to another and think they've got some neat toy. Why don't they have real toys anymore? Why don't you go out in the woods and build yourself a fort, you little eight-year-old engineers, instead of playing with some fake transformer? They should sit at home and hear about transformation by the power of the life-giving voice of Jesus Christ. Paul and I knew how to engineer a tree fort. It could hold a few pounds. It had a few rusty nails. But it was different. I don't want to talk about our childhood. I want to talk about our dying, brother. Let's talk about our dying and our resurrection. That's a whole lot better. We marvel about birth, and rightly so, but let's be honest. It's truly reproduction, but what about resurrection? Oh, yes, resurrection. Resurrection's coming. Our hope is in Jesus Christ's resurrection power. Brother Newell mentioned and emphasized the word power and the fact of power of Christ's resurrection. In one of the songs we sang this morning, our hope is built on his power and our faith is built on his love and commitment to us. He's not going to lose a single one of us. He's going to exert that power on our behalf. He's coming for us. He ever liveth at the right hand of God to make sure that no one slips through the cracks. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The Lord Jehovah is life. I want you to find at least a verse today that you like. 
I should be using an overhead so that we could cover more verses, but I still am not doing so on Sundays in order to preserve your solemnity in the house of the Lord. I could cover more territory. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 40, and I'm not picking on anyone. Deuteronomy 32, 40, I'm just complaining. Because when I look at my outline, I'm afraid. But let's just share a few things today, and then let's have the Lord's Supper and celebrate His death and His resurrection. Without His resurrection, His death is meaningless. I hope you got that from 1 Corinthians 15 last night. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're still in our sins. But he did rise from the dead, and we are not in our sins. They're never going to be brought up again in any penal legal way whatsoever before God. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is the song of Moses. It is a glorious song, and it is just before Moses is taken up into a mountain and dies in the last verses of this chapter. And God is boasting about himself and how he has taken care of the church of the Old Testament. I want one verse. Well, how about if I give you two? Verse 39. This is God speaking. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. I love verses like that. It was 40 years ago when the Lord showed me verses like that that lit me up. And I don't ever want to lose that fire. A verse like that should light you up. That's our God. And we like reading verses like that, no matter how politically incorrect they might be. That is a glorious verse of infinite power, of giving and taking life, giving and taking health, And there is no other God with him, and no one can stop him, slow him down, or even question what he does. But the next verse is what I'm here for. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. When he lifts his hand up to heaven and he wants to declare something, I live forever. Anyone in here want to say that? In your flesh? None of us can say it in our flesh. Can we say it in our spirits? Yes! I live forever because he told me, because I live, ye shall live. Because Jesus lives at the right hand of God, we're going to live forever. He that liveth and believeth in me shall never die, Jesus asked. Believest thou this? Yes, we do believe it. But look at that verse. This is God talking about how he is. I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. That's our God. That's our God. Oh, Lord, yes. And when he wants to swear by himself, do you know how he swears? One of the ways he swears? As I live, saith the Lord. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 21. Those ten spies gave an evil report about the land of Canaan. God said, as I live, he swore by himself. That is swearing. God can't swear by someone higher than himself, so he has to swear by him. When we go to court, we swear by him because he's the highest authority in the universe. So help me God. But when God swears, as I live, which is independent life, eternal life, self-existent life, I am that I am. I live forever. As I live, these men and the people following them will all die in this wilderness and they'll never see the land of Canaan. And so he cursed them in the name of the Lord. 
Look at Revelation chapter 1. Have we been there already this morning? Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Let's see the Lord Jesus Christ speaking just like God His Father in heaven. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. I am He that liveth. Who is He that liveth? God lives. I live forever. I am He that liveth and was dead. I am the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the first and the last. You don't need to be afraid of me. He says in context, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I hope that we're here today in the Spirit on the Lord's day to be taught by the Lord Jesus Christ from His written Word and by His Spirit. I am He that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus said amen. We say amen and have the keys of hell and of death. The Lord Jehovah is life, and His Son is life. The Lord Jesus Christ, glorified for 2,000 years, declares the same truth to us that we can read about God in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Resurrection equals the giving of life, the taking of life, and the restoration of life. You're alive, you're dead, you're back to life. Our bodies are alive right now. They're going to die, and they're going to be brought back to life. That's what resurrection is. Jesus was alive. Jesus died. Jesus lived again. That's resurrection. It's an incredible thing to think about God giving life in the first place, taking that life because He has the authority to do it since He gave it, and then giving that life back again. That's resurrection. Resurrection equals death, life, and life again. At death, he takes the spirit back, which leaves the body dead. At resurrection, he puts the spirit back in. You say, where's that in the Bible? Do you really want a verse? Okay, since it's in the, you want one in the New Testament or the Old? New? Let's go to Luke chapter 8 and verse 55. Luke 8, 55. I mock no one when I say that. You know why I said it. You should. It's in both Testaments that when a person is resurrected, the spirit goes back in the body. You put that animating, vital, powerful spirit back in to the physical body that comes back to life. I don't care if they're brain dead on a machine. Is there still a spirit in there? Listen, you're brain dead every time you go to sleep and half the time you're sitting in class in school. Now, let's not measure things like that. Let's measure it by the spirit being in a body. We can't tell exactly when it leaves. We don't really care. We can get pretty close to it. Is it possible for us to keep, you know, a body continuing to go through some of its ordinary functions while the spirit's already left it? It's possible because we can flood it with enough electricity and blast enough oxygen into it and beat its heart for it and do all those other things when it's not doing it itself. But that's not a subject for right now. Because when the Lord keeps a body alive or brings it back to life, it's nothing like that sick existence of a vegetative state in some hospital bed. They haven't figured out anything yet. And they never will. Because they don't know where it came from, how it's here, the rules that govern it, the place of the Spirit, how to retain the Spirit. They don't know anything about keeping the Spirit. The Spirit leaves whenever God says it's time for that Spirit to leave. And when it leaves, you can jerk that body with electrodes just like you can a man in an electrical chair, but he's not alive. Luke 8, verse 55. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. 
This is that maid that Jesus raised from the dead. He told the mourners that were all there, weep not in verse 52, she's not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. I love the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any little girls in here? Jesus said, Maid, arise. And she came to life. If you're ever in trouble in your life, even as a little girl, you call unto the Lord of heaven and to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to speak a word and take care of any problem in your life, even if you were dead. Maid, arise. Believe it. All our little girls. You go to the Lord and trust Him. He's got the power to raise the dead. He raised one of your cousins from death right here in Luke chapter 8. Trust Him and believe Him. And her spirit came again. That's resurrection. The spirit goes back into the body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's turn there. There's other places that we could go to to look at the spirit coming back into the body. Where did the spirit of Jesus Christ go on the cross when He died? It went to heaven. It didn't go to hell. We don't believe in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus didn't descend into hell. If you're going to refer to the place, the abode of wicked spirits. Did he go into the hell of the grave? Yes. The Bible uses the word hell sometimes to refer to the grave. He went into the grave, but only his body went into the grave. His spirit never went into the grave. His spirit went to heaven because he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So his spirit went that way and his body went that way. And that's just exactly what Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that happens to everyone. Except animals. I don't care what Jack Van Empey tells you about your puppy. Your puppy is not going to heaven. I don't care how much you love it. God doesn't love it. You don't want me to get off on that trail right now. Your puppy is not going to heaven. Because the spirits of animals go downward. The spirit of man goes upward. When we, when we die, our bodies go into the ground, the spirit goes upward. They don't have any spirit like we have. Those irrational, idiotic animals that we can only teach by giving them enough corn, bananas, or oats in the right direction for enough times, and eventually, after you've done it 2,000 times, they'll do it the right way. If you've beat your puppy 2,000 times, the newspaper, it might scratch on the door in order to go outside. I said, don't get me off on that path. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 1, 5, chapter 15, verse 1. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? The word gospel means good news, glad tidings. What is the gospel? The gospel is preaching about resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Well, we're about to find out what Paul's gospel was. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Oh, this is what's supposed to be preached. Which also ye have received. Oh, that's what churches are supposed to believe. And wherein ye stand, this is what they're supposed to stand on. By which also ye are saved. Oh, the preaching of the gospel will save them. I'm going to tell you what that means in a moment. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you. Oh, you can lose your salvation by not remembering what was preached unto you by the gospel. That's correct. You can lose your salvation, the salvation of this text. Unless ye have believed in vain, it's possible to believe in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The Gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures, the way the Bible tells us about it. 
That is what I'm supposed to preach. It's what Paul preached. That's what you have received. That's wherein we stand as a church. And you're supposed to keep it in memory. Because if you don't keep it in memory, you'll lose your salvation. What salvation can you lose, Pastor? Practical salvation of assurance and hope of eternal life. Why do people get scared the closer they get to the grave? Because they forgot the resurrection of the dead. You're not going to lose your place in the book of life where God wrote your name before the foundation of the world. That's sure. Jesus said he would lose none of those the Father gave him. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. For whom he did foreknow, he also did glorify. There's no losing anybody in that chain. But you can lose the benefits of knowing that there's another life to give you hope. Because remember, in just 16 verses, we're going to get to the 19th verse where it says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So we can lose our joy. We can lose our hope. We can lose our expectation if we forget the doctrine of the resurrection. Do you understand all that? Because that's all the time we have for it. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Is this the first verse that we have written down by Paul? Romans chapter 1. Did, did, I, did I do my research correctly that this is the first sentence that we have written by Paul in the New Testament? In, in biblical book order? Romans chapter 1? Okay, it is. Romans chapter 1. Now this is a, a, sent, a long sentence, but watch how Paul defines his gospel. Follow with me. This is how important the resurrection is. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. And he goes on to say even more. We get halfway through that opening sentence. The gospel that Paul preached was concerning his son, Jesus Christ, that was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Legally, he was through Joseph and and Solomon. Biologically, he was through Mary and Nathan, a different son of David. He was David's son twice, legally through Joseph, biologically through Mary. He was the son of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God by doing something no one else had ever done by rising from the dead. And that risen Lord Jesus Christ has called me to be an apostle and I want to preach him in Rome also. Can I take a one-minute path here, a little rabbit trail here for just a minute? Verse 16 is abused in so many churches, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That verse is used in most churches to teach the, that there's power in the gospel, that if you can get an unsaved person into church and they hear with their two ear holes the preaching of the gospel, it can save them because there's power in my verbal enunciation of words about Jesus Christ. That is not what that verse is teaching at all because there is no such thing. 
A person that is dead in trespasses and sins will not be affected by what goes in their two ear holes. The Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. It wouldn't matter if it was the Spirit of God in the pulpit today. He doesn't regenerate men by putting verbal sounds out there that they latch on to and say, I love that truth, therefore I need to be born again. You need to be born again first before you latch on to those words and appreciate them. And this verse is simply saying that in the gospel, there is the presentation, the revelation of the power of God in saving us. That's all it's saying. There isn't residual, there isn't inherent power in preaching. It is the message. The preaching of Jesus Christ is conveying that Jesus Christ is all powerful and has all wisdom in saving men. Now, I have no more time to explain that angle on Romans 1.16, but I want to back up and show you how exciting the gospel is, and we should never be ashamed of it. Who did Paul want to preach to in Rome? Did he want to go to the prisons? Did he want to go to the circus? Did he want to go to the Colosseum? Did he want to go to a brothel? Did he want to go to an orphanage? Did he want to go to the mall? No, he tells us in the previous verse. Verse 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Oh, he wants to preach to the church at Rome. He's not going to Rome for evangelistic purposes. In Romans chapter 1, he doesn't say anything about, would you people please print up some flyers and get a big crowd, have a couple lead-in bands for me, so that I can then preach and get a bunch of people saved. He said, I can't wait for you all to gather together, you believers that have your faith spoken of throughout the whole world. Rome, that's verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. No, that's not their faith spoken of. Um, it's verse 8. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I want to come and see you, verse 11, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift that she may be established. That is what I really mean, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Verse 15, so as much as in me is, my whole being is committed to coming to Rome to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. The preaching of the gospel is for believers. You cannot take a person that is dead, perishing, and going to hell, not born again, and help them with the gospel. You can only help a man born again with a new man with ears to hear, eyes to see. You can only help him with the gospel. The gospel is death unto death. The gospel is life unto life, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But the gospel is never death unto life because it doesn't change men like that. God must change men. And then you have an audience that's worthy of the gospel. And Paul wanted to get to Rome to preach to them so they could all be excited together about the glorious power of God that was shown in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. That Was that more than a minute? It didn't seem like but a minute to me. Lord, I love your word. This is the gospel. And so the resurrection is important. We want to, we want to dwell on it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He couldn't get there to share with those people his faith and their faith together, mutually enjoying the gospel record of the Lord Jesus Christ made of the seed of David in two different ways. According to the flesh... But he had a divine nature, and he was raised from the dead and declared to be the Son of God by being raised from the dead and set at God's right hand and declared, this is the Son of God. 
This is my son in whom I am well pleased to the whole universe. All the angels become the servants of Jesus Christ. They all worship him. Because he's a man like you and me, he's our older brother, and he's at the pinnacle of the universe sitting on the throne of God. He is subordinate only to God. You read last night in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that Jesus Christ is subordinate to God. Don't ever forget that, because in his human nature, as our mediator, he is under God. In his divine nature, he is God. But for those eternal sonship people, just remind them that to be the son of God means he is subordinate. Don't forget 1 Corinthians 15, 28, for those of you that know what I just said. And that's okay if, if you don't and you're under eight years of age. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. He has regenerated us and given us a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Christian life of being born again and hearing the gospel and knowing God and knowing his son, Jesus Christ, is a great blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, not just a little, but abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. We have a living hope. We have a hope that is based on a life that has gone before us, that died, that rose again, that is at God's right hand, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 1 with me. Let's, let's prove that you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ in order to be an apostle. In Acts chapter 1, Peter is leading a business meeting of the other ten apostles because they need to pick a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And that's our context. And so he gives the qualifications or prerequisites that need to be in place for a man to be picked to replace Judas Iscariot. Verse 21, Wherefore? Of these men, which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Oh, three and a half years of experience of watching him in his life and hearing his preaching as well. Are you with me? I hear so many pages rattling. We'll go electronic soon. Beginning from the baptism of John, I'm in verse 22. Those, these men that we have that meet the prerequisites, and this is the prerequisite, they had to have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. That's verse 21. Beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ because that is such a fundamental point of the doctrine of Christianity. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus came to earth by a virgin birth. Jesus lived 33 and a half years. He died, was buried according to the Scriptures. He was raised from the dead, is seated at God's right hand. For those apostles to go out and tell that message, they had to have seen everything, including the resurrected Lord. And so we have it here. And it is taught in other places as well. When did Paul see him? Paul said, and last of all, he was seen of me. Did you read that last night? Last of all, he was seen of me as one born at a due season. I the Lord saved me late, and so Jesus Christ appeared to me personally. So I got to see him resurrected. Look at Acts chapter 2. Do you want to see the emphasis? I can't do all these. Can I just give you a sample of how much the resurrection is preached in the gospel? Acts 2 and verse 24, whom God hath raised up. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 of Acts 2, whom God hath raised up. How about verse 30? 
Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God hath sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. How about verse 32? This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. See, all those apostles could agree together that they had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 3 and verse 15. And killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised up from the dead. Whom God hath raised from the dead. Verse 26. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus. Notice the, the emphasis on the resurrection of the dead. Chapter 4 and verse 2. The Sadducees and the rulers of the Jews being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now if someone comes to town and says, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead, you, you would tend not to believe him. But if he healed a hundred people in a row and raised your dead aunt, you'd believe him. And so there was great power given to witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And brethren, time does not allow me to go through the rest of the survey of the Gospel of Acts showing you how important it was to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, we are trying to do that. Do you want to start at the back end of the book and come forward? Then let's go to Acts chapter 26. See, I can't leave it yet. Acts chapter 26. It's, it's exciting to read a preacher's manual. It's exciting to read our religion's manual and see that the resurrection was emphasized so much. Acts chapter 26 and verse 23. That Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. King Agrippa got to hear about the resurrection and Jesus being the first one to rise from the dead. Acts chapter 26 and verse 8. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you, O King Agrippa, that God should raise the dead? Why should it be thought a thing incredible that God would raise the dead? That's not incredible at all. God's God. God gave life. God took life. God gave life back. Is that hard? Why should it be thought a thing incredible? You know, and anybody that thinks it's a thing incredible, they don't understand the nature of a divine being. Right. They're just confused. They're, li they're living down here in their sandbox with their little toys. Instead of thinking about another being outside their realm of that, that their little sacs of mucous membrane hanging in the eye sockets of their skull can't recognize. Your little sockets can't recognize hardly anything. If it's not big, bright, and colorful and the lights aren't turned on, you can't even see it. And listen, some of you as I look around, you couldn't see it anyway. You'd need to put another pair on. Is it incredible to you to think that God can raise the dead? It's perfectly ordinary and natural and proper Amen. that God can raise the dead. Look at Acts chapter 23. Let's jump to another point. Heretics want to get rid of the resurrection. And they've done it in a variety of ways. Heresy, which is a doctrinal lie, clearly comes from the devil because he's the father of all lies. And why would the devil want to get rid of the resurrection? Because the resurrection gives us hope and what is one thing that he has none of? Hope. hope. The only thing he can hope for is that the Lord tarries his coming. Because when the Lord comes back, he's going to get thrown into the lake of fire. Because the Bible says that the lake of fire is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, those angels knew it when he was on earth. Those angels would fall at the feet of Jesus and say, We know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before our time? They were afraid of it 2,000 years ago. What do you think right now? 
The devil hates us having hope, so he wants to steal our hope. He wants us to put our hope down here. As soon as you get your hope reduced from looking to heaven and spiritual things that are above, as soon as you lower them to this plane, bad things happen all the time down here on this plane, and your hope is going to be shaken, rattled, and then stolen from you. You've got to keep it right up there. Nothing changes up there. I love it when we have an over... Was it last Sunday that was so overcast and cloudy and rainy when we came here? And, you know, we commented to each other that just a few thousand feet up, the sun was shining as bright as ever has shined. It's just a few little clouds. Remember, your little mucous membrane sacs hanging in the eye sockets of your skull? They can't recognize anything just a couple thousand feet away. But all you've got to go to do... All you've got to do is go to GSP, pay a few bucks for a ticket... Let that thing get in a 45-degree angle, take you up through those clouds, and all of a sudden, give me my sunglasses. Why did you tell us all that? Because in heaven, it never changes. And if we had our perspective upward at that 45-degree angle or a a 90-degree angle, you know, straight up, we would never be discouraged by the things of this life failing us. They're always going to fail us down here, but they never fail us when we're established up there. We're supposed to establish our feet and build our house on a rock. The storms of life can come. The storm of the the final judgment can come. It'll never affect us. Look what the Sadducees did. Acts chapter 23 and verse 8. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. The Sadducees were one of the denominations of the Jews' religion, and they rejected that there was a resurrection of the body. They rejected that there were angels, and they rejected that the body had a spirit. They did not believe that there was a spirit part of us that exists apart from our body. And so that's when they came to Jesus with the the woman that married seven brothers. And Jesus said, "Uh, do you not know the scriptures? God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham. How in the world could God have told Moses 400 years later that he was the God of Abraham since Abraham had been dead for 400 years? God's not the God of the dead. God's the God of the living. So you know what that means, don't you, Sadducees? You know what that means, don't you? If you go back to Sunday school, you could learn that Abraham's still alive. I am the God of Abraham 400 years later. So the Sadducees, look at the the effort to get rid of the resurrection even while Jesus Christ was alive. Look at Acts chapter 17. Greek philosophers, they made fun of the resurrection because it was higher than they could think. Acts chapter 17, King Agrippa wasn't too high, Paul said. Do you think it's a thing incredible that God could raise the dead? Well, these guys do because they didn't know anything about God. They can't think anything beyond their platonic love among men and other twisted perversions of existence and relationships. Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul's in the marketplace arguing with those that met him there. Certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. When Paul in the city of Athens went to a place where men discussed new things and where religion could be debated and where there were people that wanted to hear religion debated, what did he preach? Jesus and his resurrection. So they grab him when they hear this because there's no other religion quite like it. They hauled him up to Mars Hill where he could get the rest of the Greek philosophers. And so we read in Acts Acts 17 and verse 32, Well, look at verse 31, the last clause, in that he hath raised him from the dead. He exalts God by a number of natural reasons for the existence of God and then says that he has raised up his son Jesus from the dead because he is sending him to judge all of you men. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
Well, that's easy. Make fun of it. That is a deep, that is a deep logical response. That is really good. Just make fun of it. So they mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit, you know, we rejoice in that 34th verse. Dionysius the Areopagite, he spent so much time on the Areopagus, he was called the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, they followed Paul out of that assembly because they loved what they heard about Jesus and the resurrection. Those were the most educated people in the world, which means they had the greatest hindrance to understanding truth, which is the way it's always been because God has guaranteed that when he finds anybody that thinks or prides themselves in education, he's going to turn them into fools. He's guaranteed it throughout both Testaments. The early preterists. Look, at there were early preterists. You know, we've had a family lost in this church several years ago to the heresy of preterism. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Preterism says that the resurrection is past. The resurrection happened in 70 A.D. Jesus came back to earth, raised the dead. Everything in the Bible about a resurrection from the dead took place in 70 A.D. It's all over. We're in the new heaven, the new earth right now. Satan's been cast into the lake of fire. Every single prophecy in the Bible has been fulfilled. It's called preterism. It's a new school of prophetic interpretation, relatively new. It's only held by a few people, but they creep into churches and wreak havoc. And Paul knew some of them. Watch. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings. Shun profane and vain babblings. Well, what's a profane and vain babbling? For they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker. It'll be like a canker sore or a cancer if you allow profane and vain babblings, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. The faith of God's elect can be overthrown by false teachers if the true teachers don't defend them and protect them from false doctrine. And this false doctrine was the resurrection was past already. It didn't matter if Hymenaeus and Philetus thought that it was a physical resurrection that had happened already, or if they made it into a spiritual resurrection so there wasn't a real physical resurrection. There is still a resurrection yet to come when the Lord Jesus Christ comes from heaven. Now, if you're, if you're rattled a little, little bit by what verse 18 says at the end, that the faith of some can be overthrown, the faith of God's elect can be overthrown. They can be led off into heresy and lose the truth. Didn't we already see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, that you've got to keep these things in memory unless you've believed in vain? Right. Didn't Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 16, take heed unto the doctrine and continue in it to save yourself and those that hear you? Okay, but can I comfort you? How about verse 19? Does it comfort you? Nevertheless, even if the faith of God's elect is overthrown by a false teacher, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. That is where we rest. The Lord knows us. And even if we're led astray by false teachers, if I take you down the primrose path to hell in some doctrine, not to hell literally, but if I take you down some path to some heresy, God still knows who you are if you're one of His elect. 
And he'll preserve you even though you sit here and I convince you and lead you that the resurrection is past. But I'm preaching to you today to tell you that the resurrection is not past. It is still future. It is glorious. It is powerful. And it's in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and the timing of God. Amen. Evolutionists, atheists, pagans, those terms all overlap to some degree, are ignorant of life. They don't know where life came from. They don't know where death came from, and they don't know how to get life back into those that are dead. We know all those things. But all those different categories of heretics want to get rid of the resurrection because their life is no deeper than the sandbox they're playing in that they can pick up a little toy truck, look at it, and say that's a toy truck, and put it back down. That's as deep as they ever get with anything. But there's another whole realm of existence. Where in the world did we come from? Where is the intelligent design behind us? What being has that intelligent mind, that infinite intelligence? Where is eternity? Who's got the power? Who flung the stars out into space? Why does everything work according to order? How is it all able to re reproduce perfectly? Etc., etc., etc. Why has this book changed the world and turned it upside down? Right. Where did they get any moral law? Any atheist that has a single moral law is a liar because he invented his moral law. We know exactly where moral law comes from and what kind of moral law we ought to have. All atheists ought to go out and commit adultery and commit murder and commit every crime they possibly can with the thought of getting away with it because there should be no moral constraint on them whatsoever. But they cannot get away from something that God jammed inside them and it, took, it was hard with an atheist because they don't have a conscience, but God gave them a little one. And that conscience tells even nations that don't know God that they should have commandments on their books and laws on their books, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not forswear yourself or lie in court. Those commandments are true in all nations. Where did they come from? The living God who wrote them down a book and put them in the conscience of men. Right. And that conscience is enough to accuse us or excuse us in standing before him. It's another way in which we're condemned before God. Listen, it's time, to, it's time for us to have a break, but I'm not timed out yet. So turn to Job 19. Job 19. I know to, it's the Lord's Supper today, and we don't want to be pushing the Lord's Supper when we get to it. Just give me a, another passage or two. But let's go fast. The pages are still rustling. Job 19. Verse, this is Job. Oh, this is Job. You like these verses. Do I remember correctly? I believe you like these verses, Heather. Job 19, verse 25. This is Job in the midst of all his trouble. He has said in verse 23, Oh, that my words were now written. Look at the exclamation point. The man's in great grief. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. His complaint is so grievous and so great. But he did have confidence in something, and here it is, in someone. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, Amen. whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Though my reins be consumed within me, though I am being destroyed from the outside in, from the inside out, 
And though my spirit is about to leave me and I'm overcome with grief, I know that my Redeemer lives. He's going to stand on this earth and that he's going to put my body back together. My skin's going to be there. My eyes are going to be there. And I'm going to be able to see him with my own eyes. They won't be the eyes of anyone else. It won't be an eye transplant. It'll be an eye restoration. Job had that kind of confidence. You ought to read how many commentators try to take that passage right there, those three verses, and destroy the Lord Jesus Christ out of it and make this simply a metaphorical way of describing Job chapter 42. That I'm going to see God at the end of this trial. Job didn't know there was an end of this trial. Job thought that he was about to go under. It's just like Martha in John chapter 11. They're looking to the future because it gets us through this life. Jesus said to Martha, Is Lazarus going to live again? Oh, yes, Lord. In the resurrection of the last day, he'll live again. See, her her mind went immediately there. What did Jesus mean? Yeah, Jesus had a whole, had a better meaning. Jesus was going to raise that man twice. Once in just a few minutes, and then a number of 2,000 years later. And Job was doing the same thing. Are you looking for a favorite text about the resurrection? Well, here's one. Job 19. Probably the oldest book in the Bible, written before Moses wrote the book of Genesis. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He saw the total restoration of his anatomy after death, skin, body, flesh, eyes. Psalm 17. Let's see if David believed the same thing. Some of our Old Testament brothers. David saw resurrection as satisfaction against the prosperity of the wicked. When you see the wicked prospering around you, just remember that all their their whole life, all their assets, all their hopes, dreams, are all going to come to a crashing, burning end, and all your your life is just going to get started. You're going to have your mansion later. They're having theirs now. Which do you want? One that you've got to pay insurance on, can burn down tonight, you've got to maintain and have a security system for it? Or do you want a mansion later where all that's taken care of because there's angels camped in the backyard? I mean, I don't know how to tell you. It's just, it's, it's fantastic. The gospel, but we have a temptation that hardly any generation has ever had before, and that's the prosperity of life on earth. Do you know that if we'd have been in most any other generation, Enduring hardship, difficulty, poverty, struggling. Hearing a message like this would maybe lift us more. But we ought to be ashamed of that. We ought not to let this luxury steal our hearts. Here's David. Verse 13 of Psalm 17. Arise, O Lord. Disappoint him, my enemies. Disappoint him. Cast him down. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. The wicked is just the sword of God to chasten the Lord's people. Verse 14, from men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Is that New Testament doctrine written in the Old Testament? We're going to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We're going to be given a glorious body like His. We shall see Him. We shall behold His face in righteousness and we'll be satisfied that the trade was worth it. I'm just telling you the trade is worth it. Don't let this world enamor you. Don't let this world seduce you. Keep your eyes fixed and your mind fixed and your heart fixed where it ought to be on heaven. That's David. And that's enough. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Stand with me, please.